Tansay, hey and welcome to today's episode of Shakamoda. My name's Drew, coming in from Edmonton, and I'll be your solo host for today. In this episode, as you saw in the title, it's all about fashion. We're joined here today with a special guest from the Métis fashion community. I'll be speaking with Alexa Lazat about her brand, Desert Métis Creations, in which she creates traditional Métis art, including ribbon skirts and beadwork, as well as being a teaching resource. This segues us to today's guest, Alexa Lazat, who's a proud Métis person who has roots in the Métis community of Alberta's North Vermilion Settlement. Though raised outside of her home community, it became vital to connect with her culture, people, and land. This led to Alexa's pursuit in traditional Métis art such as beadwork and ribbon skirt making. She's expanded her brand, Desert Métis Creations, into a teaching resource, including workshops as well as venturing into sustainable practices of using natural materials and dyes to make her skirts. Without further ado, let's get right into the interview. Welcome, Alexa. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And yeah. thank you. It's an honor to be here. Um, hi, everyone. My name is Alexa Lazat, um, and my family comes from northern Alberta, North Vermilion Settlement otherwise known as Buttertown to locals. Um, it's just across the river from Fort Vermilion and I'm also have settler ancestry on my mom's side. Did your interest in reconnecting with your culture begin with your journey back to North Alberta, Northern Alberta or was it instead first sparked by an interest in beadwork and ribbon skirt making? Um, I think it's always kind of been in the back of my head ever since I was a kid really. And I think my trip to Northern Alberta when I was 14 kind of like just solidified how much I was missing out on. Um, we went up there for about a month and I just, it was so new. I had so many people looking out for me. Like I had so much family that was just so accepting of me when they never knew me as a child. And you know, like all my aunties just like picked up like nothing. Like I was always there. And I think just my experience there helped really, helped me know that I needed more time with them. And so I think it's just always there. So, you know, when I first was moving to, when I was going to relocate back to Canada, when I was going to post-secondary, like that was always in my mind. Like that was something that I had wanted to do probably since I was 15, 16 maybe. And so, you know, a couple years later when it was time to actually apply for those post-secondary applications and whatever, um, I, it was definitely in my mind. And so, so when I first went to Vancouver, I didn't realize how different the the culture would be for the coastal the coastal First Nations here. Um, you know, it's so different than Métisville in the prairies. Um, just such different cultures. And so at the time, I didn't realize how different it'd be because I had no reference to BC. I didn't know anything about BC. And so I thought that I could do some connecting to my culture when I was in Vancouver. And it did opened me up a little bit because there are urban there are a lot of urban indigenous people here there's so many Cree and Métis people here who have relocated but it's just you're not really embedded in your lands I guess and so I think me being here and feeling lost in the coastal nations and the coastal culture was kind of maybe even drove me further into wanting to connect more with like my specific history and my specific community and so that was kind of where I started beating was here. And I think that was kind of like the longing to connect with my actual lands. And so, yeah, that was probably the beginning of where I really like 
needed to connect to my specific community and then leading me to actually move because I just felt like it wasn't enough here. How has your personal style changed since reconnecting with your culture? Um, well, I think my whole, like my experience. So first I was beading and Mm -hmm. then I started sewing when I moved back to my community. Um, and the reason I connected so much with sewing was because when I was sewing, I actually had people coming to me and saying I was, I sewed just like my grandma who I never really got to know. And so I had people telling, calling me little Ella, that's my grandma's name saying that I sew just like her. And like they, I remind them so much of her. And before that, I just, I felt like I had no connection to her because I only met her when I was 14 and she was so sick at the time that she couldn't even speak. She had had a stroke and stuff. So for people to call me that, I was like so appalled kind of because I was like, how could I be like her if I never knew her? Like, and you know, that comes with so many different emotions like anger and resentment and all that. But yeah, so that was kind of what really connected me to sewing was kind of like trying to, I don't know if I would say be like my grandma, I guess like, continue my grandma's story in the community what led me to this natural dyeing that I've been doing is someone you know I was selling my ribbon skirts and someone asked me to make them a natural ribbon skirt because they didn't want to wear um I guess they just didn't want to wear like the toxic materials that we have in our clothing today and so that was kind of what sparked this whole interest was that you know I had this person come to me and ask me for that and I was like you know what like I've actually heard stories of us dyeing things with berry juice here, like in my community. So maybe if I like keep digging, I can actually like, like I'll, I'll try my best to do something for you. And so that was kind of what sparked this whole natural dyeing project. And, and so really it's changed, it's just changed my whole life because it's just really decolonized, not only my fashion, but also my whole life. And just really thinking about, thinking about what we did before colonization and how we were self-sufficient and in what ways we were self-sufficient. And so doing this natural dyeing just is like telling that story of how we really could do everything like without, you know, settlers, you know, settlers tell that story of, you know, we were savages and, and couldn't do anything for ourselves and whatever. But doing something like this is the reminder that we have so much knowledge that was and we had so many ways of doing things that were natural like that were from the things around us and i've been experimenting with just last week i did a workshop with urban native youth association here in vancouver and we literally went out to the park picked all these random flowers plants uh, pieces of trees everything to just experiment with what dye colors we can get from them and we got so many colors like there's so many there's so you can do anything with like the world around us now that like um i'm so lucky to be able to kind of experiment in this way and uncover some of that history and so now that i've been doing that it's just changed my not only my fashion but also my entire life and just reminding myself of those ways that we could do things before colonization and kind of just increase in that way it's like increasing your self-esteem because for so long you're told that you're you're you know second and you're not enough and your ways are not enough so this project has really just changed my life in so many different ways yeah it's it's nice knowing that there's or trying to remind yourself that there's not one set way to do something like even when it comes to things like that yeah 
Um, I was also going to ask and add on to that. Were you always as mindful of the dangers of overconsumption and fast fashion, or was it before not really a thought? Like, was that um, also part of the process? Yeah, that's actually a good question because I do have memories in high school actually of friends like you know buying a million things from Forever Twenty One or whatever, and I just never did that. And I, I don't know that it was like a thought really. I just. I don't know why I never did that, but I didn't. And then when I kind of started looking into <clears throat> my natural dye project and looking into dyeing my natural first natural ribbon skirt, I was researching like, okay, what are what are the harms of today's fashion? So that was kind of when I really looked into what is actually harmful about today's clothing. And like, so when I was focusing mostly on the ribbon skirt, like looking at the ribbons and looking at them being made of polyester, and then looking into how harmful polyester is and that it's like basically plastic when before I would have never thought of that. Like I would have never thought of what our clo clothing is made of, especially because I kind of had an assumption that it was all kind of cotton because a lot of it feels like cotton in a way. Do you have like any in mind? I mean, when we talk about like trends, I mean, the first thing I think of is just when people have these ideas on social media of something that they need to wear or certain fashions that they need to have, like, for example, you know, the 2000s coming back into, into the picture, the 2000s look, and people just always wanting to change their fashion, right, based on these trends when, you know, that is so harmful because we, it just leads to us buying and not even buying, but these companies producing millions of products, like not even thinking about individuals buying it, but when something comes into trend, we like think about the amount of items that companies will produce to make a profit. Like it is so alarming when you think about the bigger picture. And we when we stop thinking about our individual self and just like, oh, well, I'm just going to buy like these few things because of this trend. Think about the millions of other people who are doing that. And then these companies who are producing these pieces of plastic that are, you're not going to be wearing this in a year, like it's going to go to the landfill. You kind of touched on it earlier, but when you first began your Métis art journey, was there sort of community that took you and helped guide you either in the art world or the Métis community? I think you were saying it was like your family. Yeah. Itself. Yeah. Yes. I think like when I was first beating in Vancouver, kind of just alone, I learned from so many different people. So yeah, I guess it would be community. I learned from a lot of urban people. So um, I was really involved with Urban Native Youth Association and there was really comforting for me because I met a lot of people like me who didn't really know their family stories. And like a lot of people had it worse off than me because they didn't know their family stories because of 60s Scoop or adoption or whatever. And so I was different because I still had my dad in my life. It's just that he was hiding everything from us. Um, and so you know, my story isn't, I didn't have it as bad as a lot of the other youth that I've met, but it, we all kind of just shared that wanting to bring back that story into our lives and just have that knowledge. Like what even, what does our family know? Like just very simple things. I was, yeah. So I was really connected with them and they host so much amazing programming. So one of the ways I started beating was definitely through them. Like I have um, I have memories for sure of participating in their beating programs and just trying, you know, like it I was very young and I, I, I never finished anything. I was just like trying my best. And so that's like my earliest memories of beating. And I wasn't taking it very seriously. It's just something I was doing occasionally. 
yeah, I think when I really took off was when I uh, moved to my community and, you know, it wasn't just my family. It was just, it was also community members there that were encouraging me. And it wasn't my family who was calling me little Ella, like it was actually other people in the community. So I had a lot of support from a lot of different people there who obviously knew my grandparents and knew my family, but they were just really, you know, they could have been really sort of against me. I don't know if that's the right word to say, but you know, I didn't grow up there. So they could have, they didn't need to welcome me in the way that they did, I guess is what I'm saying. And so that was really where I was able to have confidence in my art, I guess. Yeah, I, I totally get that. When I started getting involved with Rupert's Land, um, one of the first events that I went to, uh, I was in a Mitchiff workshop and yeah. Dan Cardinal was running it. And uh, one of the things he said was that, like, obviously don't be shy and to like try it out. And uh, that I still remember he was saying, that Métis families will find a spot for you. When they welcome you, they will find a place for you. Yeah. Kind of thing. And that, like, I totally agree with that. That's how my family is and always has been. And it sounds like that's how it is for you too. Moving on to more of the fashion type of things. So what's your favorite or preferred medium? Would it be the ribbon skirt sewing, beadwork, or would it be the new challenge of natural dyes? Honestly, it all, like, it all has its challenges, so that's a hard question. Um, I think probably, I'm kind of one to go for the challenges, because I'm just a pain in the butt like that, but, so I think for that question, I would probably say natural dyeing, just because it's such a challenge, and I'm still trying to figure it out, and it's such a long journey, and I feel like people, like, I don't know, I hope I don't look like I know what I'm doing. I don't know if my Instagram posts or something make it look like I know what I'm doing, but people will ask me things and I still don't know what I'm doing. Like it's been, I think it's been a year and a half now where I'm trying to figure it out. And it's so like, I tell people too, it's, it's frustrating and it's hard to not have this family knowledge as well. Um, because something like I, I, there's so many little practical things where I struggle with, like trying to get the dye to stick to the natural fabrics. Um, and you know, I know that we used to have ways of doing that, but I just don't know what those ways are. And so I've been doing so much research that includes indigenous teachings, but also teachings from around the world. So one of the ways that has helped me get the dye to stick to the fabric right now is actually a Japanese method. Um, where they soak the fabric in soybean soybean juice. And so the proteins transfer to the fabric and that helps those natural dyes stay there. Um, I'm also learning basic knowledge like the, oh, I can't remember what it's called. There's something in different plants, flowers, medicines that naturally helps the, the dye stick to the fabric. So there's different levels of a certain, I don't want to say chemical, but something in the in the natural material that basically helps helps it stay on the fabric more than others would so yeah i'm just i'm trying my best with that one right now so i think that's probably my preferred one right now just because i am i'm working so hard for it and i'm not and i still have so much to learn when did you get the idea to expand your beadwork and ribbon skirt business desert metis creations into a teaching and resource brand i guess it kind of started actually with mna because i i was selling my stuff at metis fest i think it was metis fest a few years ago and 
I, you know, I had all my skirts and stuff and I had one of the workers for the climate team approach me and she was kind of talking to me about all my stuff. And then she was like, you know, we're actually starting a speaker series for Métis people who would like to share their stories about different, uh, different stories in, in anything in relation to climate justice. And so I was like, you know, I was very surprised because I had actually been working on my natural dyed skirt at the time. And so I was like, okay, like, I guess I have a little bit of a story for that. I mean, I didn't have a lot of confidence though. I was really unsure of myself still back then, still kind of uncomfortable, like pretty shy, didn't think I could like speak in front of people. Um, and I was always super shy when I was a kid, like, yeah, I could never speak in front of people. And I never thought I could. And so I, yeah, she was talking to me and she's like, yeah, let's like, let's discuss it. So we exchanged emails and I guess just with time and kind of with her nurturing me, like I've, and we came up with a plan together for an episode for the speaker series. And that was kind of like my first public speaking gig, I think. And so that was where I was able to share all this knowledge of, of this research that I've done on fabrics, how harmful they are, fast fashion, the trends, all this stuff. So I was able to share all of this and then share a little bit about my natural dyeing project and kind of as my sort of like war against fast fashion. That's like my small little piece that I have in the game. And that was sort of my first, yeah, that was my first speaking gig. And so I think that was really life-changing for me because it, I proved to myself that I can speak in front of people. And so from there, um, I had always known that I had a want to quote unquote help people, which I don't really like that phrase, but I had always had a want to like, I guess contribute is a better way to say. It. I always wanted to contribute to other people's well-being. And I, for a long time, I thought that just meant being a counselor, but this whole world has kind of opened me up to realize that you know, Western psychology, Western counselors are not the only way to contribute to our community. We can contribute to our people in so many different ways. And me sharing my simple little, you know, concoctions that I'm making in my house is a way to contribute to other people. And in a way, it helps us all grow together because once we start sharing our stories with each other, we gain knowledge from each other and we are starting to decolonize as a group, right? And we're not taking on this fight all alone as an individual trying to decolonize our lives. And so, um, yeah, yeah. So it was kind of that first thing, I think. So going off of that, out of the three workshops that you provide, the Métis.art, floral beadwork, and ribbon skirt making, would you say you have a favorite to teach? Oh, that's a good one. I think it really depends on my group. I've had, like, I have so many different people that I meet and I work with so many different groups. Like I've worked with kids as low as like grade two, um, work with high school students, work with university students, work with adults. And so I don't think it's so much about the teaching that I'm doing. I think it's more depends on the group. And I just really enjoy people who are willing to learn. You know, I've had people who are just there because they have to be, but I've had those people that are there because they really are interested. And so I think no matter what I'm doing, it really is that energy that I get from other people. And I do really, really appreciate these true allies who are like here to learn and like support us, um, support Métis people and Indigenous people. And I, I think that's really what makes my different workshops really 
stand out to me and continue this learning like to their family friends you know if their family is making racist comments you know they have this kind of more knowledge on their back about the beautiful pieces of in my case metis culture and just yeah just really those people who are just really there to like continue fighting for us when did you make your first ribbon skirt so it would be actually when i was in my community so we were uh, I was working at the Métis office there. It was like a, a tiny Métis local Fort Vermilion. And so me and my boss and my other coworker, we wanted to make ribbon skirts for a march, I think it was happening. I think it was for a May 5th march that we were doing in, I think the march was in high level. And we wanted to make a skirt for it. So we all had that matching red floral beaded fabric. We wanted to make that. So basically... The three of us like stayed after work and there were sewing machines in the office. We had sewing machines for programming and basically we worked all night like working on this ribbon skirt and my boss was joking that she went cross-eyed because we <laughs> probably did for a moment honestly and we did it and that was my very first exposure to my to my sewing skills that I had I guess but now I've practiced a lot too so I think it's a little bit of both so it's very special to me that it was in that way. Yeah, that's awesome. I recently got my, I didn't make it, but I bought my first uh, ribbon skirt and it's just like for like five years ago, I would have never thought that I would like be this involved. So it's like, like same kind of feeling, you know? Yeah, definitely. Two, with the ribbon skirts, um, you know, when I made my first ribbon skirt, that was, that was so special to me. And, and it's amazing. Fast forward, um, I guess that would be over two years ago, two and a half years ago, maybe. Fast forward and, you know, there's kind of been a, I don't know if you'd say a pushback, but there's been, I guess, rumors and of people saying that Métis people didn't wear ribbon skirts. You know, that's a First Nations thing. And I don't know if, if people have heard that in the prairies so much. I think maybe it might be popular in, a popular thought in BC. But I was actually able to uncover uh pictures of my relatives wearing ribbon skirts and i just couldn't believe it like i came across this ribbon dress that was made by i think she would be my great third times great auntie uh, her name was adeline lazat and she, she they preserved this ribbon dress that she had made in the late 1700s and it was like this dark velvety you know very european looking uh dress and then it had these black ribbons like all along the skirt part and it made me cry when I first saw it because she was sewing this in the late 1700s. And here I am in 2020 trying to make a ribbon skirt with no idea of why I'm making it. And then a few years later, like I find that my family has, was making them for a very long time. So that was very emotional for me. And it's really it continues my, again, my sewing story where I was trying to connect to my grandma. And now I'm not only connecting to her, I'm actually connecting to lots of women behind me. Like I said, I got my first ribbon skirt. I didn't make it, but my like dad was very emotional when I got it. He just would never have thought that we would be that connected again. Cause I'm from uh, Elizabeth AT settlement around Cold Lake and yeah, yeah, in Alberta. So, um, so I think we're done here. I don't awesome. have any more questions. Um, I just had what uh, social medias would you like us to promote or put into the description? 
Oh, yes. Um, so Instagram and Facebook are great. So at Desert Me Tea. Okay. I'll have my website, www.desertmeteacreations.com. And I think that should be good. So thank you so much for joining. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for being my first interview. I was very nervous. I'm so glad. No, that was amazing. Okay, so nice to meet you. Yeah, thank you so much. All right, bye. Bye. For today's episode, our heritage mischief word of the day is la façon, meaning, you guessed it, fashion. Of course, our word of the day would have to be the mischief word for fashion. It's also easy and fun to say, la façon. Fashion and art are closely intertwined within the Métis community, seeing as our traditional clothes are handmade with much attention to detail, such as the beading, tufting, or embroidery. A big thank you goes out to our guest, Alexa, for joining in on this episode and for being a sustainable and traditional Métis fashion icon. A big thank you also for listening and for supporting Shakamoda. Make sure to check out the show notes in the description to view and support Alexa's brand, Desert Métis Creations. Have a great rest of your morning, afternoon, or evening. Merci, and thank you until next episode.